Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. My guest today is Mark Lacour. Mark is an incredible director at Oil and Gas Global Network and the co-presenters of many podcasts. One that is currently my favourite is the Oil and Gas This Week. Mark, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. No, I'm just a guy that works in the oil and gas industry. I've been here for 25 years. Um, I accidentally started the first oil and gas podcast in the world, which is Oil and Gas This Week, which is now the number one oil and gas podcast in the world. That show has listeners in every single country on the planet. We're right at 1.8 million listeners for that show. And it's just it's just been an incredible journey. So thank you so much, uh, Michelle, for having me on your show. When did you start your podcast, actually? About eight years ago, my marketing guy came to me, and this was with my original company, Modal Point. He said, hey, we should start a podcast to promote Modal Point. And I looked at him. I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard come out of your mouth. Nobody listens to podcasts. So obviously, I was wrong, right? And so he kept on and kept on. And eventually, I said, okay, we'll do it just so she'd be quiet. He wore me down like a little kid. And what I didn't know is we started the first oil and gas podcast in the world. So we've been doing this for about eight years. Wow. There's hope then. Because I've only been doing mines maybe a couple of weeks and I've got so many interviews and I've got quite a big following just now, actually. So hopefully it will be as successful as you. (laughs) So how did you get started off in the energy sector? So about 25 years ago, I just needed a job, right? I was uh, dating a young woman. I wanted to settle down. I wanted to quit quit traveling. And I knew the phone company in the east part of the United States, which was called Bell South. And they said, Mark, we have the perfect job for you. It's the oil and gas portfolio of our business. Unfortunately, nobody else wanted it because it was a very hard group of companies to deal with. So um, I said, I'll take it because I just needed the job. So, So I inherited every oil and gas company that was in the phone company's territory, which was everybody, all the super majors, all the majors, all the independents, all the service companies, all the midstream companies, all the downstream companies. And what was really cool is I went from knowing nothing about the oil and gas industry to seeing the whole industry laid out in front of me. So I saw, hey, these guys, the upstream guys, they get the oil out of the ground. Hey, these midstream guys, they move it in pipelines and rail or tanker. And these downstream guys, they turn it into products you can sell. And oh, they're service companies like Halliburton and Baker Hughes. They do all the work that nobody else wants to do. So I was very lucky to see the whole industry um, laid out from the very beginning. And that's how I got my start 20, I say 25 years ago. Actually, it's been 26 years ago. Okay, excellent. Who was your role model and why did you find them inspirational? Oh, that's a really good question. So my role model at that time was a guy that nobody had ever heard of. His name was Stephen Covey, which most people nowadays uh, remember him from the uh, Seven Habits courses. But I met him before he got very famous. My manager at that time believed in promoting their people and educating their people. So he put a lot of money into us having education outside of our job duties. So I got a chance to meet uh, the legend, Stephen Covey in person, and I got a chance to follow him and his work. I mean, he made a very big impact in my life. I still, to this day, use some of the seven habits as the way I run my company. You know, think first to understand, sharpen the saw. You know, those, those things are, were very important to me 26 years ago. And even to this day, I still use those things and run my company. Okay. 
Excellent. Did you have any mentors during your career? And what was the most important thing that they taught you? Was oh, it- God, that's a great question. I have a lot of mentors in my career. So, you know, I'm 58 years old, so I'm probably a little bit older than most of your listeners. The very first time I went offshore on an oil rig, I happened to know one of the big service companies. I don't want to mention their name because I don't want to get anybody in trouble. <laughs> and I literally said, hey, I've never been offshore. And they go, well, meet me at the heliport on Wednesday. So with no Hewitt training, with no certifications, um, I got in a helicopter, flew offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, went to an oil rig. And they showed me, this is a moon pool. This is a mud pump. This is a drilling rig. You know, this is a, a tongs and change. This is how we handle pipe. Same thing happened with a big refinery in uh, Mississippi in the U.S. I got a chance to know the refinery manager. So he put me in his truck and drove me around the refinery and said, this is a coker and this is a cracker unit. This is a distillation unit. This is uh, where we import us of raw crude on the terminals. This is where we export stuff. Same with the pipeline guys. So I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of very senior leaders in the oil and gas industry mentor me through my career. And that was the way I learned so much. And it's really a shame, you know, right now in 2023, if you're a young person in the oil and gas industry, you don't get a chance to do all of that because rules and regulations have changed so much. But it was a great way to learn to actually have people that were senior leaders in the oil and gas industry take me and show me physically the different parts and pieces and how the industry works. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Because I remember when I was a young engineer as well, you were still able to, when you went offshore, you were still able to go around the whole of the platform and, and let everything be explained to you without much rules and regulations. Yeah, yeah, so where did you go offshore the first time? Was it the North Sea? It was the North Sea. That's yes, a totally different environment than the Gulf of Mexico in the U.S. The weather conditions are so extreme in the North Sea. It's a whole different level of training to make sure you stay safe. But I will tell you this much. It's um, Aberdeen is one of the most beautiful spots in the world. It's I've, I've been there several times. Um, same way being in Norway, but uh, sorry, Norwegians. Aberdeen is much, a much prettier country <laughs> than Norway. But wonderful people, beautiful sites. I, I really like the North Sea environment. Yeah, the North Sea environment in Aberdeen is quite amazing and it's quite important for, for Aberdeen as well. Yeah, I've worked offshore in Norway as well. It's quite different. The, the weather conditions off there is quite severe as well at points. Yeah, it's also a different culture. And, and it's one of the things I love about the oil and gas industry, no matter where you are in the world. If I'm in the North Sea, if I'm in the Gulf of Mexico, if I'm off the coast of Africa, if I'm in the Mediterranean, it's like a family. And once people know, just like you and I are talking right now, once people know that you work in the oil and gas industry, we're all just like one big family, no matter where we are from in the world. It's a wonderful thing. It is, because there's not a lot of people that work in oil industry. There's only a yep. small amount. So a lot of people... You probably will. They probably do know each other, no matter who you are in the world. What is the most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? Ooh, so I run Oil & Gas Global Network. We have the top 15 oil & gas podcasts in the world growing like crazy. Uh, Probably one of the most challenging things before the pandemic was explaining to people what a podcast was. So I love my industry. The oil and gas industry is is makes modern life possible, but we're a little bit old old fashioned, right? And so having to talk to somebody at like Exxon or Shell or Chevron uh, before the pandemic and explain what a podcast was was one of my biggest challenges. Now that everybody's been through the pandemic, everybody's learned what a podcast was. So you know, being able to 
take that little bit of social media, which is podcasting, use it to help educate the world and also make a living out of it um, was, was, was hard. Well, like I said, before the pandemic, after the pandemic has become much easier. Everybody knows what a podcast is. I mean, I'm sitting here on your podcast because you found me online somewhere. You know, that's just a wonderful thing. Yeah, I found you online when I was checking on my podcast to make sure that it had not uploaded uh, correctly. <laughs> uh, the podcast yeah. that I listened to. I even I even invited you to a conference, which I know you can't make because you're on the other side of the pond right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, we have a conference next week that's an oil and gas conference, and we're inviting every other oil and gas and energy podcaster to come join us. So uh-huh. it's not just our 15 shows. We're going to have other podcasters from the renewable environment, from geothermal, from nuclear, from storage from wind, from solar. I look at all podcasters as a family. Once again, just like oil and gas, we're a family. We do something that brings us together, which is podcasting. So that's, that's one of my favorite things about this is I have this second family of podcasters. It is because I've, I've met a few other podcasters. In fact, one of, the, one of the people that I do work with as well, he is also a podcaster. So teamed up with him and he does help me a bit with my podcast. So it is, it, I do agree, it is quite a family. Once yeah. you start your, your own podcast, you're open to meeting a lot of different new people, which is, which has always really surprised me as well. It is very surprising, right? The same people that would ignore my emails or phone calls when I was a sales guy are happy to come on the podcast as a guest. <laughs> and it's crazy. Yes, it is. Yeah, that, I do agree with that. Yes, that is very, very true. I have found actually that the people that I was really good friends with and really good working colleagues with wouldn't come on my podcast. It's always the people who are unexpected agree to do it. I don't know if you yeah, is that them. strange. So the same thing with us. So when we first started, our close friends and family didn't want to come on the podcast. That's and right. yet I would have the president of Baker Hughes happily come on the podcast. <laughs> it, is a, it is a strange thing. I haven't figured that one out yet. No, I, I have no, I know. Because I had contacted a few of my old employers, quite senior managers as well. And maybe they're a bit shy. Maybe. Hopefully they change their mind though. How does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? Who are you kidding me? As a young yeah. boy, I never in a billion years thought I would talk for a living. When I was very young, I wanted to be a World War II fighter pilot. And when I was about seven years old. I figured out that if I didn't, couldn't invent a time machine, there's no way I could be a World War II fighter pilot. You know, early in my career, I was a project manager. I built cell sites, which made your, your cell phone work. And then I, I stumbled into the oil and gas world and I just fell in love with it. I never in a million years thought I would run a podcast network and it is most wonderful. And it's, don't get me wrong, it's work. You know, sometimes we get aggravated or, or, or you know, frustrated, but in the grand scheme of things, it's the most wonderful job you could possibly imagine. I literally, Michelle, talk for a living. That's crazy. Yeah. I was going to lead on with that. Is there anything in your career you still want to achieve? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of things. So uh, one of the things we do is we give back to local charities. So I'm sitting uh, right outside of Houston, Texas, which is the global epicenter for the oil and gas industry. And we contribute to a charity that fights human sex trafficking that basically helps young women, especially and young boys to get out of the sex trade. Um, I want to do more of that. I want to be able to help more of the world. I also want to educate more of the world. Right now, the oil and gas industry has a lot of negative public perception all around the world. 
a lot of people, especially young people, think we're destroying the planet. And as you know, it's the opposite. We take more care of the environment than any other industry out there. And just nobody knows that. So we're help, we're trying to educate the world. We're actually launching one of our new podcasts. This could be a podcast for children to help them understand about energy literacy. I love renewables, but renewables aren't a, a, a replacement for hydrocarbons. If you're a chemical engineer, a hydrocarbon is the most wonderful set of Legos you could possibly imagine. Everything that makes modern life possible comes from hydrocarbons. You and I are talking right now over the internet. The internet cannot exist without hydrocarbons. The servers, the insulation on the wires, the fiber optics, the satellites that make this conversation possible. Even the microphone right here that I'm talking on comes from hydrocarbons. Unfortunately, most of the world doesn't know that. So one of our goals is to help educate the world. And one of my personal goals is to help not only educate the world, but actually give back to more charitable organizations. So yeah, there's a lot more I want to accomplish. You were saying before that you have currently 15 podcasts and you've got more being issued, released 2023. Do you think having your podcast has changed your life? A hundred percent. We talked about this earlier. You know, before I started podcasting, nobody outside my little circle actually knew who I was or knew who my company was. Now everybody knows who I am in my company. Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, listens to our podcast. We have members of the U.S. Congress listen to our podcast. We have members of the British Parliament listen to our podcast. Every year when ADAPEC happens, which is a big oil and gas conference in the Middle East, Middle East royalty invites us to come <laughs> to ADAPEC. It has 100% changed our life. It's given us much more reach. It's allowed us to spread the message of how hydrocarbons or oil and gas is beneficial to mankind. And it's just continuing to grow. It's, 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 sometimes it's a little overwhelming. So often I'll be in an airport somewhere in the world and somebody will hear my voice and they recognize me from the podcast and they run up to me like they've known me for 10 years because they have this intimate relationship because they've listened to me for eight years on the podcast. And yet I have no idea who they are. So it's, it's totally changed my life for, for the better. That sounds good. That sounds amazing. I do understand how the reach because I do check on my ratings to see who's been listening because you don't see who's listening, but you can see what country that is. It's quite amazing. Yeah. It's quite yeah, amazing. We, um, we have listeners in every so up until recently we had every, we had listeners in every country on the planet except one small country in South Africa and I was getting ready to pay somebody to listen to me in that country so I could say we had uh, listeners in the whole world and then in November we picked up four listeners so we literally have listeners in every single country on the planet that's crazy that is crazy I think I've got about 13. 13, 13 different countries. Yeah, we're in 202 countries. It's, it's, it's a, a crazy, but it's good though, right? The fact that we have that type of influence. It is, it is. And for a new podcaster, that's that it's quite inspirational as well. Because I think even even maybe 13, 13 countries is not too bad for a couple of weeks. No, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. In your opinion, what makes an outstanding hire if you were going to hire somebody to work with you? Ooh, so that's something we struggle with. I can't go out and hire a somebody that has experience in selling podcast sponsorships. I can't go hire somebody that's experienced in producing podcasts. It's so rare. So we have to train those, those people. So what we look for is desire. So I can't hire for skill sets. But what I can't, what we can hire for is somebody that fits our culture 
And that also has the desire to be successful in whatever role we're hiring. So, you know, right now I have two editors. I have one producer, two project managers. So basically you think I have a, a five person team that takes the audio files and edits them and gets them out on time. And none of those people other than the editors had any background in podcasting. But what I did is found somebody that was really good at, at managing a sequence of events, very good at time management. That's my producer, right? My two editors had experience editing video, which means they also had to learn how to experience how to edit audio. And so it's an easy transition. But for us, we we hire for desire, not for experience, because we can't hire for experience. Okay. So you train a lot of your people that you hire up. 100%. We have to train them all. But then that's a good that's a good thing. Is it easy to train them? How long does it normally take? It's not that hard to train somebody now that we're bigger and I have other people that can do it. When we were smaller and I had to do all the training myself, it was time out of my day. Now it is interesting. All of my hosts, so I have 15 different hosts uh, that work for us. They all get paid. So they're all professional podcasters. Every single one of my hosts was a listener to one of our podcasts. And we didn't do that on purpose. It would just it just worked out that way. But because they listen to the podcast means they had a an appetite for podcasts. They want to listen to it, which then made them a natural host. Being a good host is not being an expert on the subject. Being a good host is just like you're doing right now, is having the ability to ask good questions and then be quiet and let the guest respond and not try to over talk them or think ahead of them. So it is. I do find it interesting that every single one of our hosts is a, is, was a listener to one of our shows. Once again, we didn't do that on purpose. We're launching actually a children's energy podcast in a couple of months, and I'm going to do a contest online, which is one of the ways we find new hosts. But even when we do the contest online, like on LinkedIn, the person that wins it typically is a listener to one of our podcasts. Oh, wow. Yeah. What is your comp- what is your competition going to going to consist of? We have no competition. We're, we're we're the number one in the world. If you search for oil and gas podcast, you see us come up first on Google. We're almost at three million listeners. We're in every country on the planet. Our sponsors are companies you've heard of: Amazon, IBM, Hewitt Packard, United Airlines, Technique FMC, blah blah blah. As long as we don't make a huge mistake. We, 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 we're literally number one and, and we have no competition. Now I say that one of our competitors is people that have started their own podcasts and that want to grow. So I could look at you as a, a competitor, but I don't, I look at you as family. I look at you as my cousin who's much younger than me that hasn't gotten to where we are yet. How can I help you? Can I help you find sponsorship dollars? Can I get you good interviews? That's why I invited you to the conference here in the States that's happening next week to come join us. I look at every other energy podcasters, family, not competitors. Okay. That's a healthy way to view it as well. Have you had any career disasters? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I got to be real careful how I mentioned this. So let's just take the podcasting career and let's talk about a disaster there. We had a Fortune 100 company that was a sponsor of ours that back in 2020 during the pandemic did something that ethically I was not okay with. This is a huge company. It's a Fortune 100 company. It's one of our sponsors. They wrote us a check every month and I fired them because ethically I was not okay with what they did. And it was a hard thing to do, Michelle. I mean, you know, this is this is $6,000 a month coming in the door that I 
reached out to the company and said, I don't want to do business with you anymore because of what you did. My team thought I was crazy. Even myself, I had to think about it, but it was the right thing to do, even though it cost us a lot of revenue. <laughs> and luckily for me, um, after I fired this company, about three months later, they had a management change and they came back to me and they go, we want to work with you. And this thing that we did, we won't ever do again. And so I brought it back in as, as a sponsor. But that was that was that was a disaster. I mean, I mean, literally a disaster to get rid of that revenue. I know it was money that that we used to pay our people based on my own personal ethics. But in the end, it worked out for the better. Um, and I didn't know it was going to work out for the better. I just did the right thing. But that was that was a mess. Do you ever think that when you're worried, when you're in a, a in a in a tough situation like that, that things are going to turn out for the better? Do you do you always think about why was I worried about that? When maybe years later, it's maybe turned out for something even better down the road. Yeah, so it's easy in hindsight to look behind me and go, oh, it always turns out better. When you're in that moment, that's not what you're thinking of. You're thinking about the pain of losing that revenue, uh, the pain of losing that name, that logo, that sponsor. Um, you're thinking about repercussions. They're much bigger than I would. I, I am. They could have taken me to court. You know, That's not what I was thinking of in the moment. But yeah, in retrospect, you look behind you and go, look, every single time it's worked out for the better. I just did what I thought was right. And that's one of the ways I try to run the companies. One of the ways I try to lead my life. I'm not always perfect, but overall, if I, if I, if we do the right things, it, it tends to work out for us. I'm the same. I'm not perfect. But I always try to do the right thing, but you always, I always worry about how things are going to turn out, but they always turn out good in the end. Yeah. It doesn't stop you from worrying. So it doesn't, in your opinion, what has been the most challenging thing in your career? Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So if I look at my entire career, you know, you have the, the cycles of the upstream part of the industry. You have 10 years of prosperity, and then you have two years of low crude natural gas prices where everybody's laying people off and it's, it's really doom and gloom. So if I, if I look at my entire career, it's those low cycles. You know, I went through one in the 80s, one in the 90s, one in what, 2010. Uh, during the pandemic 2020, when all was actually negative, those are always ho- hard to go through because you have friends and business associates that are losing their jobs. And, and there's nothing good about that. If I look at the podcasting part of my career, probably the hardest thing we went through was actually the pandemic during 2020 in that we grew 107% during 2020. We were the only marketing game in town. So all these big companies had marketing budgets that if they didn't spend it, they were going to lose it by the end of the year during the pandemic. And a lot of that money was earmarked for conferences and trade shows, which were shut down across the world. Mm -hmm. But big companies still had to get in front of their clients, their existing customers, their prospects. But everybody was locked down at home, once again, across the world. Because they were locked down at home, they were bored. So the consumption of our podcast quadrupled, went up four times. So we were the only marketing game during the pandemic and all gas that still worked. It's the only way for people to get. So like I said, we grew 107%. I had to hire people that I couldn't meet in person. We could not buy microphones. We could not buy camera lenses. It was, it was chaos. But somehow, a, a lot of it, the credit goes to my team. We pulled through that. But that was a, one hell of a challenge. Nobody in the world had ever been through the COVID pandemic. And so nobody knew how long it was going to last. Speaking of Aberdeen, that March of 2020 
2020, we were supposed to be in Aberdeen launching our all gas sales and marketing podcast. I had bought $17,000 worth of, of airplane tickets and I had to make the hard decision to not go to Aberdeen based upon COVID. Now at that time, I thought it was just like the flu, like it was gonna be no big deal and it would be over it in a month or two. But I, I erred on the caution side because I work in the oil and gas industry and I'm worried about, you know, risk. Um, it's in my in my blood. And so I made the right decision kind of accidentally. We lost $17,000 in airline tickets, but but we didn't travel. If, and if we would have traveled, we would have been locked down in the United States for three weeks in, New, in the New Jersey airport, which would have killed our business. So, And then I was lucky enough that the, the airline company gave us, even though I bought non-refundable tickets, the airline company gave us our money back. So we really didn't lose it. But that was, that was a hard decision to make. And then, like I said, 2020 was was a crazy year to try to be a podcaster. And like I said, we we grew, we had a lot of revenue, but everything else was just chaos. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But I think a lot of, a lot of people, when they were locked down, a lot of people did did take to social media to fill in their time. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad that your that you your business was okay actually during the pandemic. It was funny. So before the pandemic, when we interview different people, uh, we flew around the world, right? And then during the pandemic, we couldn't. So we had to learn how to do interviews remote like you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. And my entire team said, why were we flying around the world? <laughs> this makes no sense to spend that money and time because you can get as good an interview remotely as you can in mm-hmm. person. But we would have never learned that if it wasn't for the pandemic. No, that's right. I think with the technology nowadays, I think anybody's anybody can be reachable any anywhere around the world. Yeah. Having the internet and the technology to do that opens up a lot, a lot of opportunities for a lot of people that are willing to take the risk and do it. Yeah. And put yeah. the right there. Yep. So what is your zone of excellence? Ooh, zone of excellence. I've never been asked that question before. So I think we do a very good job of educating the world on the benefits of the oil and gas industry. I want to reach more people, right? So we have 3 million listeners. I want 100 million listeners, right? So I I got a ways to go. Um, But I think we do a very good job with our 15 different shows. Uh, Each one's on a different subject, but it allows people to to learn about the industry, about the the oil and gas industry in a way they, they normally would not have ever learned. There's not a lot of good documentaries out there. There's not a lot of good YouTube channels on the oil and gas industry. So we kind of see ourselves as that, that group that's educating the world. And, and I love it. Literally every day I have between 10 and 50 people from all over the world reach out to me and say, Hey, Hey, Mark, I didn't, I heard you say my girlfriend's lipstick could not exist without hydrocarbons. And I called, I called bullshit. I think you're wrong about that. And I did the research and Oh my God, you're right. Not only my girlfriend's lipstick, but my soccer ball and my nylon shirt and the car, my car tires, none of that. And so just by doing that little bit of educating the world, I think that's what, that what, what we're really good at. It's one of the things that makes me very passionate about is I'm helping the world understand the benefit that hydrocarbons bring to, to, to humankind. Yeah. Cause I think some people don't realize how much hydrocarbons affects their everyday life you have your every day even six 
Yeah, 60% of the world is fed with fertilizer made from natural gas. Like that means six out of 10 people, whatever they ate that day was fertilized by natural, the ammonia stripped out of natural gas. People don't know that. And as an industry, we do a really bad job of educating the world. And so that's one of the things that we take pride in is that we're we're doing that. We're educating the world and the value of hydrocarbons. Yeah, because even you're, even I remember as a young graduate student, Studying the oils, the oil composites made up of different different types of level, and the more the, one of the most valuable is obviously the the oil the petal you put in your car. But then the oil is used throughout everything, even even your your plastic bottles have oil. Literally everything, everything that makes modern life possible: the carpet in your home, the paint on the walls. The vinyl in an electric car, the insulation, the wires in an electric car, you know, literally everything that makes modern life possible, the light switch, the internet that you and I are talking about right now. Like I said earlier, the microphone that I'm talking about, all of that comes from hydrocarbons. Yeah, it does. Even even something trivial as if you're buying like a, a greetings card. Yeah. If it's glossy, that's got oil in it. The ink on it comes from hydrocarbons, like literally everything. Yeah, it's strange. It's it's strange, but it's true. How would you describe your typical working week? Oh, geez. So I, I get up somewhat early, around six o'clock in the morning. I uh, go work out in the gym. I have a gym that's five minutes drive from here. I come back. Most of my work day is working with other media companies. So um, there's conferences, there's trade shows, there's expos that, that want us to join them. And they do that out of selfish reasons because they know if we mention their trade show on the podcast that 500 people, extra people will show up. So then we negotiate those type of deals. We constantly have people that reach out to us that want to sponsor, that want to get their message out on our podcast. So that's another part of my day. Um, I have a 17-year-old son that's going to graduate high school. So he gets himself up. He goes to school, does great by himself. He comes home at three o'clock. And I try to quit working around four o'clock in the afternoon so I can spend time with my girlfriend, so I can spend time with my son. Spending time with my family has become more important now that I'm in my 50s than it was when I was in my 30s and 40s. And then I try to disconnect in the afternoons. You know, typically I'll cook. I love to cook. I'm I'm, I'm Cajun, so I'm, I'm Acadian descent. So in my culture, you're not considered a man unless you can cook and cook really well. So I do all the grocery shopping, all the cooking. So I Typically cook dinner for the family. We have a family dinner, hang out, and then I go to bed and I get up the next day. I try not to work on the weekends, but the truth is I probably work <laughs> a lot more on the weekends than I want to admit, just because I run a company. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, when you run a company, it's easy. No, when you run a company, it's actually harder than if you work for somebody else. When you work for somebody else, you literally can just kind of walk away from your job on the weekends and come back on Monday. When you run a company, you can't. But but I love what I do. And so it's, um you know, I get to do stuff like this. I get to, I, you and I have never met. You reached out to me. I'm being interviewed for your podcast. How wonderful is that, that I get to do stuff like this? It is. It is really amazing. I really love doing my podcast, actually. It's quite nerve wracking at first, but it's, it's uh, yeah, it's quite good. We probably wouldn't have met otherwise. I don't, we would not have ever met without the podcast. No, that's true. I really do believe that. Who do you depend in your working environment? Ooh, that's a good one. So about three years ago, I, I hired a chief operating officer. So I'm really good at certain things in the business. I'm really good at sales. I'm pretty good at marketing. I'm horrible at finance. 
for years, I would log into my bank online for the business. And if we had money in the business account, I go, okay, we can spend it. I had no plan. So I hired a chief operating officer who brings a lot of financial expertise. He now does cash flow projections. He helps manage the workflow of, of the podcast. He's put a lot of processes in place. The best hiring decision I ever made. So I depend on him 100%. And allow, and he basically runs the tactical part of the business, which allows me to be more creative and think about bigger picture things. Which, like I said, I, I like I depend on him a hundred percent. Actually, I depend on the entire team. It's funny. A couple of weeks ago, I sent a link to somebody so they could download a file, and it, the link expired. And I go, "Why did this link expire?" Well, we have IT policy. And it's like, when do we get IT policy? It's my company. Well, we have IT policy, we have HR policy. We have, so by hiring the right people to build the company, they bring things to the organization that I am not good at, which which sometimes I laugh at, like, like the IT policy, but it's something we needed. I never in a million years would have implemented an IT policy in my own company, but he but we've done that for a cybersecurity reasons. So yeah, I, I rely on my entire company, but, but my chief operating officer is the one I rely on the most. Okay. What keeps you motivated when things get tough? The audience. You know, like I said, we have about 3 million people from every country in the world and people reach out all the time. If you go to All Gas This Week on, on Apple and read the reviews, and we have everything from CEOs and presidents to high school students saying, man, you really changed my life. You taught me something. I didn't know this was going on. I didn't know this about the oil and gas industry. There's no other better motivator than that when people appreciate the work that you do. Now, there's it also is a bit of a weight, right? Because we have uh, members of our government and other governments that listen to us, when we get something wrong on the podcast, I got to make sure I correct it so that organizations and people don't make bad decisions based upon what we report on. One of the problems with oil and gas in the world is it's been it's been politicized. You know, every country in Europe, in the U.S., every, Australia, everywhere, politics have gotten involved in oil and gas, and that's a very dangerous co- a combination. Number one, most politicians know nothing, literally zero, about the oil and gas industry. But number two, the policies and laws they enact affect our industry. We're in a global energy shortage right now. Not because there's not enough energy, but because governments have tried to push renewables too fast, too quick, and have limited hydrocarbon production, and now people can't afford to heat their homes. Winter this year in Europe is going to be bad, but next year it's going to be even worse. You look at what's going on in Germany, they're building cold fire power plants like crazy just to keep their people warm. That's not good for the planet. If they would have stayed on their path, they would have never implemented interwind, which is their push to renewables too quick. And, and nothing gets renewables. Renewables have their place in our energy mix. I love renewables, but they only fit certain circumstances in certain parts of the world at certain times. And hydrocarbons have been what has powered modern life for for a hundred years. And trying to get away from hydrocarbons politically has hurt a lot of people. You're gonna have people in Europe have to choose between putting fuel or petrol in their car and feeding their children. Nobody should ever have to make that decision. So just understanding the the benefits that hydrocarbons bring to mankind, understanding the real science. So every form of energy has some impact to the environment. A windmill or solar farm impacts the environment in some fashion, and we can mitigate that the same way with the production of hydrocarbons. The production of hydrocarbons will impact the environment, but we can mitigate that. 
not understanding how all that stuff works has, has, has hurt the world. And I'm, and what I'm hoping that we can do is help educate the world on the benefits of the oil and gas industry so that we can have cheap, reliable, abundant energy across the entire planet. You know, I, it's, I mean, look at what's going on in Africa right now. There's certain nations that have huge hydrocarbon deposits. And if the governments tap into those hydrocarbon deposits responsibly, it's going to be schools and hospitals and grocery stores and, you know, roads, and all the cool stuff for their population they've never had because of the hydrocarbons. And that's what we need. We need the world to be more prosperous, not be more constrained around energy. I agree. I think that a lot of the world views that the, the energy industry in a whole, whether it's renewables, oil and gas, whatever it is you work in, I think a, a vast majority of people think that it is a bad thing when it's not. It keeps everything going. And the fact that it's everybody in Everybody, especially in the UK, I think we're all struggling here with the, the increase of the, the electricity and everything like that. But I think it's the, uh, globally as well. I think it's just terrible that people have to decide about whether they're going to, you know, whether they're going to eat or whether they're going to heat their house. It's horrible. And, and it's, 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 it's because of politics. The energy source is there. It's literally under your feet. If you're in the UK, you literally have natural gas under your feet, and yet you won't tap into it because you're worried about the fracking. And the problem with fracking is the word. It's a hard, it sounds really bad, right? If the geologists that invented that process, and by the way, hydraulic fracking is two processes. It's an old process invented in the 1940s. Uh, where they frack the rock and they, that was originally invented by shell world dutch shell in the u.s to help water production in california in 1940s for agriculture that's an old technology the new technology is horizontal drilling and so they combine these two technologies and they call it fracking the problem is they allow geologists to name it they should have a marketing or salesperson there and named it something like butterflies or hummingbirds or love your rock or anything other than fracking. The word fracking sounds bad. So people don't like it. They don't understand the process and how it's much more environmentally responsible before fracking. What they did is they, they would drill a hundred horizontal wells. Now they drill one horizontal well, but they go laterally and tap into the reserves. And so it's much better for the environment. It's just the word fracking itself sounds bad, but in Europe, there's gas everywhere. They could frack and they would have more gas. They knew what to do with, but to your point, because it's a negative public perception around the extraction of natural gas using fracking, Europe's having to import fuel from other parts of the world. It's crazy. We do it here in the United States. So California has more oil and natural gas in almost any state except Texas, but their own policies and politics prevent them from drilling in their own land. So they buy gas and oil from Russia, which is not good for anybody, right? The, the chance of you having a spill transporting crude oil from Russia to California in the U.S. is a lot, as opposed to you drilling in California itself and moving that uh, crude oil in pipeline, which is almost zero chance for a spill. So it's just it's, it's just a mess. And it's all caused by politics. It's not caused by physical constraints. Hydrocarbons are everywhere. It's, it's just it's crazy that we've allowed the world to get to where we are now. And I know it is crazy because I know that the U.K., we export gas from gas electricity. Yeah from a different country to other countries as well where we could really be realistically self-sufficient 
a hundred percent and not only self-sufficient it would be so cheap for the the citizens of the uk your utility bills would be pennies instead of pounds right but no it's because of politics it's crazy it is it is crazy i have one final question unless you want to discuss anything else my final question is if you could turn back time would you change anything we just talked about that. I would change the word fracking. <laughs> I would go back <laughs> and change that to something much more palatable. The other thing, in, in all seriousness, you know, the oil and gas industry predominantly is an industry of engineers. What we do is um, very engineering centric, very project management centric. We, we basically tap into natural resources that are explosive, that can be dangerous, and we do it very responsibly, both from a health, safety, and environmental point of view, but also from a personnel point of view. But, you know, starting with Greenpeace in the 1970s, you had organizations that don't understand what we do, that talk bad about us. And for, you know, what is that? 50 years, we've never corrected them. Anytime somebody says something bad about the oil and gas industry in public, we don't stop and correct them. And then you you get to the point 15 years ago where you have social media. I mean, I have 12,000 people follow me on Twitter. It's crazy, right? Well, now you have people and organizations that really hate the industry because they don't know what we do. And they think we're destroying the planet. And they have the ears of millions of people around the world. You know, Greta Thunberg, I, I don't know her. I've never met her. But but from the outside, she's very anti-oil and gas. I guarantee you the clothes she wears comes from hydrocarbons. The plane she flies in burns hydrocarbons as fuel. The food she eat was fertilized by hydrocarbons, but I bet she doesn't even know that. So if I could change anything, is I would have the industry itself starting 50 years ago, start educating the world and the value that we bring. If you look at space travel, space travel is impossible without hydrocarbons. All rockets that, that leave the Earth's atmosphere right now run kerosene and liquid oxygen, and kerosene comes from crude oil. Elon Musk company SpaceX is generating is, is building a new generation of rocket engines that run a liquid methane. And if you don't know this, methane is natural gas. And so and you and you wonder why he's developing rocket engines that run a liquid methane. If you look at our solar system, at the halfway point, there's a planet called Saturn. Around Saturn, there's a moon called Titan. And Titan is covered with lakes of liquid natural gas with methane. It's a refuel spot. Elon Musk's company is planning on stopping that Titan to refuel its spaceships. Nobody knows any of this. And so if, if I could just educate the world, if I could go back in time and educate the world on the value of hydrocarbons, that's 100% what I would do. And would also prevent them from calling the pro- fracking process fracking. I'd make them call it like hummingbirds or butterflies or something so the world wouldn't hate it. Interesting. I've asked that question a lot. I've noticed it's the first type of answer. Yeah, insightful answer. Thank you. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Mark for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.